Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. There is a difference between actual racial discrepancies, realities on the ground, and various ways of thinking about those realities or various solutions being proposed for those realities. Today's episode is not about the solutions proposed. It is not about critical race theory as a lens versus other lenses. Today's episode is about human beings, white people, coming to a realization of the facts on the ground. I am so much more interested in uh, practical realities when it comes to the issue of uh, racial systemic injustice than I am the esoteric debates about how to conceive of those uh, systemic injustices. I'm, I'm a lot more interested in policies to fix them than I am culture war arguments about whether Marx is an appropriate a thinker to look at them through. Um, perhaps we'll get into some of that stuff on this show. It may or may not be kind of outside the purview, but what is not outside the purview of this show is the process of coming to see one's participation in a bad system, basically. And there is a religious element to this awakening, really, is what I think of it as. Um, and that's why I'm calling this episode Testimonies. Of course, that word has a different meaning. For those of us who grew up evangelical, it's about our coming to faith in Christ, generally speaking. But I would say that coming to realize injustice in our world 
especially often perpetrated by people uh, ostensibly in Christ's name, is a religious awakening. It is related to our faith. And I ask all four of my guests today about how it relates to their Christian faith. So um, one thing that is I'm very happy about is that recognition of these realities is becoming uh, more widespread, especially in white communities. Um, but, you know, there's, of course, a long way to go. And, and, and also, I should say, coming, th- this is step one, right? This episode is about awakening to the reality around you. Then there is a other conversation, multiple conversations, different possibilities for how to move forward. And I hope that uh, we are all open to voting with our, our votes and our dollars and our time toward those ends, toward reducing, for instance, the wealth gap between white and black families. Um, anyway, I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole here too much. I just wanted to give that as like a, I don't know, a 30,000 foot view. So we're going to hear from four people today. Um, we're going to start with Joe, not because men are better than uh, women. I have one male respondent, but because Joe is to the furthest right on the ideological spectrum. He is a lawyer and he is a part of the Federalist Society. This might be a good interview to share with your conservative dad or something who knows about the Federalist Society. This is the group that generally recommends um, Supreme Court nominees to Republican presidents. So Joe is not a liberal. He is not a bleeding heart. Uh, He worked for the Justice Department. He's a kind of a law and order guy. He's a Roman Catholic. Um, Anyway, we're going to start with Joe. uh, And then we got three others after that. Joe, thank you so much for joining me here. So you and I have been friends for most of our lives. We were born on the same day. A very small proportion of listeners who have been with me from the very beginning of the podcast days will remember you from episode like two or three of Depolarize in 2016, a long time ago. Uh, And you haven't been on since. So it's good to have you back. (laughs) Thanks. That was was when I predicted that Trump would not nominate any conservative judges to the court. That was false. Yeah. Yeah. It was very false. How the turntables have. (laughs) But I want to set this up because it's worth noting for the sake of this conversation that you are to my right in, I think, every category I can think of politically, jurisprudentially, which we'll get to as a lawyer, social views, theological views. I mean, we're, we're good friends, but like in no way have you outlefted me. I don't think in any major category. Would you agree that that's true? Uh, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, not not that I know of. Yeah, not that you're like a MAGA hat wearing sort of far right guy, but like every category, it, it's 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 relevant to this conversation about a perceived liberal sort of cause or whatever. Yeah, I will say I've I've actually almost never been a registered Republican. I've always been an independent. The only time I ever voted for a Democrat uh, was in the 2016 election, where I could not bring myself to vote for Trump. But prior to that, I always voted for Republicans and generally align with like conservative viewpoint on most issues. Some some outliers, like I'm pretty liberal when it comes to immigration, for example. And that kind of comes from my Catholic background, my newfound Catholic background. But yeah, on lots of issues, I'm, I'm relatively conservative. Yeah. So you're a lawyer. You're a corporate lawyer. You work at a big firm in San Francisco. Before that, you worked... Uh, in antitrust at the Justice Department, and you went to law school at the University of Chicago. What else do we Wait. need to know? Oh, no. I went to undergrad at the University of Chicago. I went to law school at Berkeley. Okay, that's right. 
Thank you for correcting me. Yeah. Um, Go Bears. Two, two very cool schools, very high, high level schools. But what else do we need to know about you for context for this conversation about systemic racism? I was homeschooled and grew up in a relatively conservative circle being homeschooled. There are homeschoolers who do it because they're like hippies. And then there are those who this do was it not your family. <laughs> no, there was, there was like a tiny bit of overlap there. There was like a tiny bit. Um, but most of the families I knew growing up were homeschooling because they wanted to ensure that their kids had sort of a more traditional set of values. And um, most of them were evangelical Christians, educational separatists of a kind. Yeah. Yeah. There's a little bit of quality in there too, but it, well, definitely, you know, your father is uh, one of the inventors of the Java language, very smart man, very high sort of level of academic excellence in your family before whatever we want to call this kind of awakening, this, this shift in thinking, describe your understanding of sort of racial relations or the predicament of black Americans or however you want to phrase it in your own language. Sure. I have always viewed racism as sort of the original sin of America. And I have always been, in terms of my own values, very against racism, very much in favor of equality of all people. Um, But I had a view that um, the best way to solve racism in America would be to try to ignore race as much as possible, to have our policies be as colorblind as possible, and that hopefully sort of that would, over the generations, the more colorblind we could get our policies and laws to be, people would just gradually kind of mix together and racism would recede as a problem in America. Um, so I'd had, I held that view for a very long time. I think over the last few years, it, it hasn't been like a sort of eureka single moment, but the recent events with George Floyd's killing, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery and the protests have kind of brought out a lot of discussion about it and has sort of created a lot of opportunities for me to talk about the sort of my thinking. And it really has changed to sort of realize that the view that I had was naive. Maybe it would work over like hundreds and hundreds of years, but it wasn't realistic and it wasn't the best way to solve the problem that is literally killing people, keeping people in poverty today, really creating a lot of injustice in our society. That's kind of been the, in broad strokes, the change in thinking I have had. Was this change more recent than my impression of it? Like, it sounds like it's in the last year or so that it's really turned a corner, which is not what I would have assumed about you. No, it was a little longer than a year. I can't really pinpoint when that began. It was definitely after law school. I think maybe the seeds were planted when I started just having a lot more contact with the criminal justice system. I have represented um, indigent black. I have a client right now. I've had him for actually almost six years now representing him in a gang prosecution in federal court and just firsthand dealing with FBI, police, prosecutors, and then also representing other defendants who can afford to pay their legal bills who are from very different classes, races as well. And just uh, coming to a realization that is, is very sharp, the difference in the way that the criminal justice treats system treats black people as opposed to white people. Part of that's about class, you know, if you can afford good lawyers and so forth. But 
really just getting a, a viewpoint into policing and how these cases kind of originate. Because it isn't, it isn't just once someone's in court, what rich people can afford good lawyers and poor people cannot. It's really from the ground up, the kinds of arrests that are made, the reasons for those arrests, how the police contacts kind of get generated in the first instance. Um, and just really noticing like all these cases that I got in, came into contact with were kind of coming up through real sort of garbage police contacts like broken taillights and, you know, the George Floyd was arrested for a suspected attempt to pass off a counterfeit $20 bill. That's, that's insane. That's insane. It's, that's not, that's not unusual. I mean, I think that the, there absolutely is um, an, a method of policing where you find some bullshit reason to stop somebody or pull them over because you think that's the kind of person who has a gun or, or drugs. Yeah, because let's be clear here. The cost of the cop's time that day on that shift to stop someone who used a $20 counterfeit bill, allegedly, right. it's not even worth their time. Like, right. that's not the reason. It's not because this is some great crime, right? It's like, right. oh, this is the way we get a guy who matches this profile, basically, or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know for a fact, obviously, that like that was sure, what happened sure. with George Floyd, but it definitely fits that pattern. I mean, four, four police, I mean, I don't know how many squad cars showed up. I don't know all the sort of specific details, but there are definitely four, at least four officers there with no threat to public safety and to investigate what seems like a very petty crime. And by the way, a crime that I would, I, I was even surprised to learn local police gave two shits about that. Right, I was exactly. Yeah. That the feds were the ones who investigated counterfeit counterfeiting. I mean, it's like the secret service, the secret service was like formed for the purpose of uh, investigating counterfeiting. And then they eventually became like the bodyguards for politicians. But like, I, I was very confused by that whole, the whole situation there, like why those police were there in the first place. And it just kind of made it seem like even more of a pretext. So can you talk a little bit more about the kind of stuff that you have seen that has changed your perspective? Because you, you do have an interesting, you've got an interesting view here. You are essentially, if you'll forgive the phrase, a high powered lawyer. And we don't, you know, we don't talk to high powered lawyers all that often, or who have like a direct sort of in to the criminal justice system. You're a defense lawyer. So there's that as well. I'd like to sort of pick your brain a bit more about specifics. So as you're like, oh, okay, it's not like what I thought. Like, can you give us some more specifics or details without talking uh, about your clients, obviously? Yeah, I can't, I can't sort of say too much about the work that I actually do. I think I can make two observations, though, that, that come from my direct experience. I should say I went to law school thinking that I would become a prosecutor. That was sort of my original, that's what I wanted to do. And, and I think for very good reasons, I was very inspired by, for example, uh, International Justice Mission yeah, um, and the amazing work that they do. And, and it really was, they are a bunch of ex-prosecutors. I mean, Gary Haugen, the founder of that group, is an ex-U.S. Uh, attorney, uh, assistant U.S. attorney. And that was my original reason to go to law school. I think what happened was a couple of things. First, I had a really idealized view of what prosecution of crime was. I had this idea that it was sort of like the prosecutors only took cases and pursued the sentences that were just and that were appropriate to, to remedy the crime that had been committed. And in 
trying cases against the Justice Department as an attorney now, I have really realized the other kinds of pressures and incentives that prosecutors feel to pursue sort of the highest sentences often and penalties as possible, regardless of sort of the facts, um, the pressures from their supervisors to kind of charge as much as possible, the tendency to get dug in once you charge somebody and you're taking them to trial, even if evidence comes to light that makes it seem like, oh, maybe this person isn't actually guilty, this real tendency to just try to ignore it or discount it. And that results in, I think, unjust prosecutions. So that's one sort of observation. Another observation I would say is just the tendency of the way that our, especially like RICO prosecutions and gang prosecutions and a lot of the sort of street crime prosecution that happens. I don't have a lot of exposure to sort of local county stuff. Uh, I mainly do federal, federal work, but there's definitely like this suspicion I've observed, I think among lots of police and investigators like if people kind of grew up together or they're from the same community and some of them get into trouble, that it kind of means everybody's in on the crime, so to right, speak. Right. Almost this idea that like if you have like a tight knit black community in a neighborhood and they like claim the neighborhood, you know, they talk about how they're proud of it. Well, that's that means they're a gang and that means they're conspiring yeah. to deal drugs or commit crimes. And I've, I've done a lot of research on gang prosecutions as some of the, as part of some of the work I've done. And that's, that's something I've come to sort of a personal view that I've sort of developed uh, an observation I've had to me, that was very distasteful because, you know, people who are a threat to their community and who commit violent acts and those, should, those things should be investigated and punished. And, but I don't know that that approach where you try to sort of, treat the associates of criminals and you try to create these conspiracies and these broader based um, prosecutions, they really seem problematic to me. I want to talk about that first thing you said about sort of the internal pressures and incentives. You know, you and I have talked about this actually a lot just as friends about how, and you, and you get this in sort of the higher minded media around the courts uh, and, and the legal profession that like what actually happens is you've sort of got a system that's set up for prosecutors to be maximally incentive incentivized to go for the maximum penalty defense lawyers to be maximally incentivized to get their client off as well as they can, even on a technicality. And in an ideal situation, of course, no individual situation is ideal, but on the balance that will end up sort of near justice, right? You've basically got your, it's like a Super Bowl. You get the two yeah. best teams and like it's going to be a close game. At least it's going to be a close game and best man will win or whatever. Now, that might be true in an idealized sense. And I understand the the motive and the rationale for that. But if, for instance, you have a situation because of hundreds of years of other factors where two populations are coming into that system as defendants with vastly different resources. Well, now all of a sudden this, the idealized version of the system, the Super Bowl version, it's actually, you know, the Seahawks playing the, the corn huskers, right? It's like, it's like an NFL team playing a college team. It's no, it's no longer the, it's not working the way it was designed. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's a common critique. Um, and it's a good one. Your description of the adversarial system and how it's supposed to work is good. Uh, 
but I don't know what the better alternative. I honestly don't. I'm sure. not an expert on this. Like I don't sure. know what the better alternative is. I, it's absolutely true that those with more resources get a better shake. I I honestly, in this particular thing you're talking about, I honestly don't know how much race as opposed to resources is the issue. Class, Obviously, yeah. like R. Kelly, well, there's a videotape of him peeing on a 12 year old girl, <laughs> and yeah, he was not convicted. And, right. OJ um, was not convicted. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So, uh, no, obviously OJ, was, that's just like an amazing, complicated, crazy. Yeah. But I mean, thing, just but, well, they're wealthy, right? They're, yeah, they're pretty clearly yeah. guilty, but they're wealthy and, you know. But, so I guess race comes into it there, you know, in a powerful it's a, it's way. It's anyway, one click because, down the line because yeah. of resources, right? Is what I'm, yeah, the argument yeah. I'm making. Yeah. I think that's right. I think that has to be right. Is there anything else you would like to say before we go to describing sort of where you've come to now, like how you think about it. I think that my, the places that I've lived have played a role there too. So I went to college in Chicago at the University of Chicago, which is sort of an island in the middle of black neighborhoods. It's sort of like USC being in Watts in LA. Yeah. Although some of the neighborhoods, it's weird. Like on, on one side, there are some actually quite middle-class black neighborhoods, but then on some sort of the Southern Western side, it's, there's some very rough neighborhoods, but I actually made it a point to try and get into the neighborhoods a fair amount when I was a student there. And I think that started a, a sort of a, a, a process of just always being in pretty diverse. Ever since then, I always lived in pretty diverse places. From there, I went to San Francisco. San Francisco is pretty segregated, but the segre- like the neighborhoods are so small that like you go four blocks and like you're in like a yeah, you're all of a sudden in the tenderloin, and people are just smoking crack right in front of you. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. so it's, it's, San Francisco is a weird place for that reason. And then now, now I live in Oakland, which I think I feel like is the most integrated city in the United States. It's like insane. I mean, it has all sorts of challenges and problems, but like, you know, there, a lot of the neighborhoods are very integrated. A lot of the families are integrated. There's so many multiracial families in Oakland, but I think that just living in diverse neighborhoods made me just spend more time thinking about what are my biases and how am I reacting to the to my neighbors? Um, and are my reactions coming from a bias or a prejudice? And so I guess I just, I've spent a lot more time just over the years. I have been confronted by myself in a way just because of where I've lived. And I think that's played a role. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So we talked about, you know, the view you had kind of growing up with up through maybe law school. And we've talked about how it's changed. But how would you describe the way you see this issue now? So first off, it's evolved. It's, I'm continuing to evolve. It's something that I, especially recently, have come to feel a lot of humility about. I'm nervous talking about it. Sure. Not even sure why I agreed to do this. Um, <laughs> Too late <laughs> just, now. No, I, I no, I get um, it. No, I totally get it. Yeah. I just anecdotally, like I could say, like until very recently, like when I met a new acquaintance or colleague who is African American, I did not want to even acknowledge that they were black. I wanted to pretend that there was no difference between us. And that, that that comes from like a good motive. I don't think that made me a bad person, but I think it did. It was sort of a cop out. It was sort of like, I'm, I'm white. I, I don't know their experience. It's not my place to solve racism. Don't want to get into that because I'm just going to say something wrong and I can't help anything. And it's who am I to talk about like the black experience or to talk with people about that. Um, and I kind of realized this has been the more sort of like aha moment real lately 
I've realized like that is, is a crutch. Like it was a crutch for me to just not take the responsibility that I think that I owe to my neighbors and my friends and my colleagues to not take the responsibility of, of doing something to further racial justice. And so that's sort of like the most recent sort of development in my own thinking. I, I think that as a, as an attorney, it dovetails with like my view of, of the law, like my previous view of the law of like the best law would be one that does not even impartial. Yeah. Just right. completely impartial. And I guess that still is like the ideal, but it made me realize like I have a duty to my neighbors to do justice and to pursue justice. And that is the, the purpose of the law as well. And the law, I think, I don't know exactly how, and I'm just learning, but I think the law actually needs to play a role, a more active role in racial justice where the law does address race and does try to swing the pendulum in a way that corrects from really hundreds and hundreds of years where the law was used as a tool to perpetrate injustice. So, I mean, that's kind of a, that's where I'm at, I guess. The, that phrase do justice. I mean, I think you're consciously or subconsciously quoting from Micah six, eight, you know, do justice, walk humbly with your God. It's one of these like some summing up the Old Testament kind of verses, which leads me to my last question, which is just so you converted or joined the Catholic Church, but we were both raised in the same evangelical church before that. You know, we've both been Christians our whole lives, basically. How do you see this issue of racial injustice and, and justice through the lens of your Christian faith? I think back on what my sort of view of politics and the law as an evangelical years ago. And there was sort of a period where like I grew up, we grew up in the same evangelical church. And like in college, I was like, I attended like an EV free, like charismatic church, which was crazy. And I have like a whole faith story where that freaked me out and caused me to like not want to go to church at all. And then, um, so there was like sort of a period of like very um, not engaging with my faith. And then I became Catholic. And one of the things is like the Catholic church, because it's global and like it's decoupled from like American politics, you know, obviously there's, there are issues there. And like everyone talks about how like there's a lot of white Catholic support for Trump and yeah, it's um, the second, second biggest group after white evangelicals. Right. Right. And, but it's, it's a smaller percentage than the white evangelical. Not as good as Mormons though. Right. They have have the best record. With the Mormons Trump. are keeping us honest. <laughs> <laughs> New kids uh, on the block, keeping the old it. guard honest. Yeah, I love it. But but I do think like the Catholics because it's because it's a global church, um, and the and the leadership is global. And like your priest might be from any country, right? And, like, right. You don't ch- you don't choose your priest. Your priest kind of shows up, and he could be from like Bangladesh or Argentina right. or you know wherever. Um, and it really impresses, I think. I talked about how like living in a diverse city like makes you think and kind of make, brings you out of sort of a, a per, sort of parochial or, or sort of nationalistic view or however you want to put it. Um, and I think being Catholic does that too. Another aspect of that is the Catholic church is very adamant in its support for immigrants and migrants and refugees and is taking a very strong, I think, stance against sort of xenophobic nationalistic policies. And there's a, there is absolutely sort of a 
a synergy there with race, right? I mean, obviously, like the, some of the same impulses that make us treat our sort of African-American neighbors poorly are the same impulses that make us afraid of uh, Mexican immigrants or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, It's just sort of this like deep-seated thing that everyone sort of struggles with. And the Catholic Church, I think, in sort of being global and being more diverse and being very focused on welcoming the outsider, I think has been sort of helpful there too and, and just being a constant reminder one of my favorite things about attending mass, my favorite place to attend mass in Seattle is just the main uh, cathedral downtown. And my favorite moment is during the Eucharist, just looking around and like this little Vietnamese woman has the wafers and this old ass white man has the cup. And to my left and right are just like, there's a homeless guy. And every nationality because it's just this urban downtown cathedral, even in a fairly white city like Seattle, that is like a thing that Catholicism brings. Like it's kind of baked in. Uh, And it's something that I have personally found incredibly valuable when I've worshiped in Catholic spaces. I mean, we we've texted about this. I know, but it's, it's something as a point I like to make, which is, you know, evangelical churches, you choose your minister. And like I mentioned, you don't choose your priest. I mean, obviously you can choose to go to a certain parish, right. but, but the priests kind of get assigned by the head honcho, you know, whoever is in charge and they, they come from all over. And, and so you're not, you're, you don't, it's, it's harder to fall into a trap of just like picking leaders who look like you and who have your same culture. Yeah, it's and, less consumerist. And the, and the entire church growth movement, capital CGM, which has been massively influential in Protestantism for the last 80 years or whatever is entirely based on building churches of similar ethnic and socioeconomic status so that people are like each other and they feel comfortable. And that's how churches grow. And the Catholic church is like, fuck that. Like we're, we're just going geographic model. The parish is in your neighborhood. That's it. You get, it's like you, no soup for you. You know, this is your parish. And there's something so beautiful about that. And so non-consumeristic. It's funny. I remember having these conversations back when like being like a youth leader at our church about how like, oh, we got to figure out how to, how to welcome people. And the way to welcome people is we got to make our music as much like Coldplay as possible (laughs) or like as much like Lifehouse as possible or whatever the band, like all the white kids were listening to. It would have been Lifehouse then. Yeah. 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 2003, maybe. I think think that the, the, at our church, like this might've been after we left, but I think they actually named the youth group Lifehouse. Lifehouse. It's not a bad name. (laughs) Yeah. That maybe didn't age so well, (laughs) but yeah, there's, so there's a lack of like, it's impossible to have a seeker sensitive Catholic church. It's just like in, in so far as the Catholics would say, in so far as people have been seeking for 2000 years and are still seeking. Sure. But we're not changing anything else. I mean, they, there's the kind of like they did the acoustic guitars based on the hippies. That that's yeah. the that's the one change. And then Vatican II to have it be in the native language, like English or whatever, instead of Latin. And right. So they are, have like yeah. So they have you, you know obviously like yeah if you if you don't speak English there is a non English you can go to a yeah, you go to the non English yeah right exactly yeah. or whatever yeah um, so there is some there's, there's something some, yeah yeah yeah. But that's, I would say that's pretty necessary. I mean, you yeah, can't expect everyone to, I guess some hard, diehard, like traditionalists would just say, well, everybody has to know Latin. Just, yeah. Yeah. You know. And they all <laughs> subscribe to first things anyway. Um, well, to not to, we don't want to get into the weeds on Catholicism, but yeah. uh, 
safe to say, I, I'm quite interested and I find quite valuable the way that your Catholic faith kind of, yeah, kind of uh, interplays with this question. So, uh, Joe, thank you so much for your time, man. I appreciate it. And keep fighting the good fight as a defense lawyer. I, I, ha- I just like can't say that without at least a small asterisk because I never really know if your defendants are guilty or innocent. But I do trust your heart. I do. Thank, thank you, Dan. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, thanks, man. Lindsay, thank you so much for uh, joining me and being willing to talk about your gradual change of heart on issues of, of racial injustice. So thank you. Of course. Thanks for having me. So some people will recognize your name and voice. Those people are probably patrons of the show because back in February, we had a very interesting <laughs> highlight, the word very interesting conversation with you and your sister, Danielle. The episode is called Martyrdom Expectations. <laughs> It's worth noting those were more your sister's expectations than yours. So that's not going to really play into this conversation. But most people will have not heard that numerically. And so can you give a little bit of the the same background you guys gave there just about your upbringing um, and then in particular your your two sisters who I think are both going to factor in to your own story? Yeah. So we were raised conservative, evangelical. We uh, had two sisters. We were homeschooled. I was homeschooled up until the ninth grade. And then I went to a Christian school for high school. And my sisters, we all sort of, you know, opted out of homeschooling at different times, but we were all majority homeschooled. My dad is a evangelical pastor. He was a youth pastor when we were younger. And yeah, we've all changed and grown <laughs> quite a bit. Yeah, it's uh, just say a little bit about uh, Danielle and Candice and their and how they will eventually eventually factor in here. My uh, middle sister Danielle is an author, and she has worked with refugees for the majority of her life. She just came out with her second book, uh, "The Myth of the American Dream," and so she has been a champion for refugees and and other oppressed peoples for a long time. And then my youngest sister was on staff with YWAM Youth with a Mission for a very long time. And she met and married a Sudanese man who's my brother-in-law and they have two beautiful children together. So yeah, now we have, you know, black people in our family, which certainly has opened my eyes to some things. Yeah. And I, I think it's just interesting. I've noticed maybe since Ferguson, and maybe that's not exactly right, but for the last few years, your mom, who was, let's say, the main character of our conversation around martyrdom expectations, who, who was very deeply into some pretty weird sort of even kind of fringy evangelical culture stuff and very deep into it. She's kind of taken part. And, and so I think that's just kind of an interesting wrinkle to this. And it's frankly hopeful to me. Uh, you don't have to say much about it because I'm sure your mom will um, will come into that. But I I've been encouraged by that and thought it might be worth just kind of noting up top. So let's start with you as a kid. If we would say that you've had some kind of awakening to, uh, you know, racial injustice by by this point now, where did you start such that you hadn't had that experience yet? Well, I mean, growing up, especially being homeschooled, we were very sheltered, you know, so it was, and we lived in a lot of like rural areas. Like we lived in Alaska when we were kids for a while, we lived in Wyoming during like my junior high years. And so, I mean, I honestly don't have, I don't have a lot of memories interacting with 
many non-white folks, especially black folks. When, you know, living in Alaska, we did some, we did some work with natives and went to native villages. And that was probably the first time I can remember experiencing a culture that was different than mine. Um, we, my parents had befriended the chief of this village and we were invited in and, and white people weren't often allowed. Was, I mean, we had to like get to this village by float plane. It was out there. And uh, the chief of the village died rather unexpectedly. And we were the only white people invited to his funeral. And I, I mean, I remember it was wild being a kid, just being like a so different, you know, than anything. I just remember it so much incense and chanting and yeah, but it definitely opened my eyes to, I, I was freaked out a bit. I don't think my parents did a very good job of preparing me. For what, I mean, they probably didn't know either, to be honest, but you know, looking back now, I see what an honor it was to be there and to be included, but I had, I just had, it was lost on me at the time. Yeah. That's really interesting. So, you know, one way I've been kind of thinking about these awakening stories, I've been calling them testimonies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that they share a lot in common with your kind of standard conversion narrative um, in, in a way that I don't think is a problem. Uh, mm-hmm. I think there is also a kind of fundamentalist, like anti-racist religion type thing that I think is a problem in the way that other fundamentalisms are a problem. But broadly speaking, you know, it's kind of like a recognition of participation in original sin. And you you go, oh, I'm not as good as I thought I was. Uh, I do participate in some evil things that cause a lot of suffering. And and it's a it's a repentance. It's a kind of a turning. But when we talk about conversion stories, there are momentary conversions, right? Like in Christianity. And then there are more like I grew up in this thing over time, slowly God showed me things. I changed my mind. Yours, it sounds like, is more one of these sort of slow conversions, this gradual change. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's funny if we're going to use the, you know, kind of conversion terms, you know, like a seed was planted. And I feel like <laughs> along the way, you know, there were maybe many seeds planted and it sort of because I don't remember there wasn't a time in my life. I don't remember also people saying overt racist things. There was not it wasn't that my family didn't like people that were different than us. We just weren't around people. And there was, I mean, there was also some conservative talk radio that happened, you know, in our family as well. So I'm sure some of that was said. I don't, I didn't internalize it. It wasn't, we weren't even necessarily raised to not see color. We just didn't talk about it, you know, at all. And so up until later, and I do credit that to my mom, I will say it's been interesting watching her journey, like, with my mom, it's big, it's relationships. So when she gets to know somebody, and so since we worked in this village, she's able to see these people differently. Because I remember kind of being told that natives, you know, the only conception I had of them is that they like were alcoholics, honestly, like right. that's yeah. like, and that we need to go save them. I mean, it was sort of what I had been told, but then my mom befriended these people. And I think that sort of opened the door to her like once my mom was in a relationship with people, she could, she could love them and see them for who they were. And then that sort of, you know, Oh, that brings up a really interesting question that we can't answer here, but that is related to one that's been kicking around for me kind of theologically for a while, which is if we had a less patriarchal structure within Christianity, and if leadership was either female predominant or shared between Mm -hmm. men and women, what kind of different outcomes would we expect to see? Mm -hmm. And that strikes me as like, of course, it's anecdotal. Your, right. your mom, but but women do tend to be more relational. There's neuroscience to back this up. And what would the conversation around race in America, for instance, have been for the last 400 years if it hadn't been so male dominated at the at from the top down kind of leadership structure? 
my guess would be it'd look a lot different. <laughs> so I agree. know that for sure. You know, there's been some white lady. I mean, Susan B. Anthony was not exactly a champion of, you know, black rights. She was only championing white women's rights. So who knows? Yeah, sure. It's not like it would solve everything, but that is kind of interesting. So for your family, the way in was your mom's relationality mm-hmm. as a pastor's wife and sort of missionary, depending on the the activity. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so then that led to, I remember sort of distinctly, we lived in Wyoming and there was a couple like really like big things that she did during that time. I remember she took us to tour a Japanese internment camp that was there and there wasn't much left of it, but she made sure that we knew that history. And I remember it just being a big, like kind of open field with some like barbed wire fencing and and it wasn't, it was like a sunny, like desert day in Wyoming, but it felt really dark. I remember feeling that. And that sort of, again, was sort of like, they, so we took a bunch of Japanese people and like locked them up in a field in the Wyoming, you know, like that sort of like that realization of, hey, this isn't, that's not right. Like, that's not the way that we should be dealing with anything. And then she also took us to a reconciliation ceremony. And I believe it was Christian leaders, but it was those natives and then white people and the the white like evangelicals were repenting on like for white people for the atrocities of the past and again it wasn't really explained to me and I remember being really confused by it at the time like wait why am I saying sorry for something I didn't do um but it did prompt conversations in our family and I appreciate that my mom was willing to do that I mean she did she went up there and she apologized for something that she did you know herself did not commit and I remember that I didn't fully grasp it at the time but I think it really it that stood out to me your story, I mean, it's already kind of hitting me more than I knew it before going into this, is very different than the average white evangelical, I think, in this yeah. case. Yeah, yeah. Way more seeds planted, to use that language, much earlier uh, than I think most of us. And then, you know, of course, you mentioned the the two things with your sister, although now I'm I'm starting to think, well, the fact that your sister – that Danielle chose to work with refugees or initially in Minneapolis and then back in Portland. And the fact that Candace chose to do YOM and was open to marrying a Sudanese man, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, some of the, of course the heart wants what it wants, but there is a sense in which you could definitely trace back a proclivity to those things, to these decisions that your mom made growing up. Yeah, absolutely. I think like, again, race wasn't like overtly talked about in our family a whole lot, but I know that like, my mom wasn't that she was like, wasn't afraid of people that were different than us. And she wasn't sort of afraid to take us into those situations and had built relationships with native people. And like, I was thinking about, it. I saw someone on Twitter the other day about the first, you know, black teacher I ever had. And I was like, Oh yeah, that was, that was college. Like the first one. Like, so, you know, like for, there was some good there. And then there was also, I mean, granted I was homeschooled for a lot of my life. So right. but the, the Christian school that I, the high school that I went to in Northern California, did not have non-white teachers, like just didn't. I mean, there's one way of thinking about it in terms of like a floor and a ceiling, right? So there's a kind of a soft ceiling to the amount of racial awareness that you're going to get being raised in the type of conservative white evangelical pastor's family that you were raised in. But you guys are probably at the 98th percentile given that kind of soft ceiling, and so that's interesting that it's still there's still a ceiling. You know, there yeah. there's certainly yeah. people who were raised multiracially or something. And you're never going to get there. Yeah. But given the, the soft kind of boundaries, really, really high up on that. Let's talk about each of your sisters a little bit. So I guess the Danielle's work would have predated Candace's marriage and relationship. Or am I getting that wrong? 
That's a good question. I mean, I don't even think. Well, so maybe they're, uh, let's just consider yeah. them just happening around the same time. Just yeah. maybe talk a little bit about each of them. So we've talked about your mom. Let's talk about Danielle. Because, you know, siblings are weird. There's rivalry. There's, you know, you, you might be a little defensive toward a sibling initially. How how did that play out for you? Um, as far as like how I. How it affected your ongoing, just your, your changing sure. conceptions around race, et cetera. I mean, with, with Danielle, my middle sister, who's done all the work with refugees and who's an author and all that, I've always joked that she's my own personal Holy Spirit. I mean, our whole lives, she was always telling me like you know, Lindsay, don't say shit or what, sorry. Can I say that on the podcast? Yes, you can. Yeah, you, can. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, she was always, you know, telling me what I could and couldn't do. And she was always just really good. She was like the good kid who didn't get in trouble. And I'm much more, I mean, classic oldest child. Like I know how to like appear to be good and I don't know how to follow the rules <laughs> and like get what I want, but I'm, it's maybe not like always from the best, like, motivations. So I think when Danielle started some of this work, it kind of seemed like classic, like goody two shoes, middle sister, who's always, that makes sense. Like, I don't know. I just thought it'd be a phase. Clearly it's not a phase. You know, I push back. We have such an interesting relationship because she's so intense about what she believes. And I think that, and because she's my little sister there, there is naturally sort of a, a defensiveness there, I guess, like we're family. And I know like, I know all the other things about her with growing, you know what I mean? The things that aren't this like perfect activist that's up on a pedestal or whatever. Does that make sense? Of and course. Yeah. No one thinks she's perfect, but I will say, I mean, she's absolutely like changed me and she has constantly sharpened me and our arguments have, you know, she's made me a better person and opened my eyes to a lot of different things in the world. And I think that our giftings are completely different and what we do, but, we've come to realize that that's okay. That like we, we, not everybody is called to do the exact same thing. And so, yeah, we've, it's taken us a while, but we figured, we figured it out. Can you remember a specific story of hers, experience of hers, something like that where, okay, something kind of clicked in your mind. Maybe the first time that I really maybe started taking her a little bit more seriously was when she got the McSweeney's column. And I started to see her having a platform and a voice and talking about her, experiences i also remember feeling she had a few trolls she had some people that were like not happy with her and i remember feeling like this protective like i don't know older sister thing where it was like you know she's spent some truth bombs here and it makes people uncomfortable like i remember her husband and i sort of made a pact to not let her read the comments and not that we were dealing with the comments but we sort of wanted to know what was being said but yeah i think it was the first time where i realized she was really striking a chord and you know obviously some people did not like what she had to say but it made me really proud and everything she wrote was just it was great it made me realize like all right this is like what she should be doing there's something about that moment that is that is lost to us now i think you know she's got two books out a lot of us in this world are aware of like Jamie Wright, the worst missionary. Corey Pegg did the failed missionary podcast. There, there's a sense in which, like, you know, I, I had a, a recent episode about this that, like, oh, missions work is actually pretty complicated. But when Danielle started writing this for McSweeney's, uh, maybe six or seven years ago, if that's about right, when I was first reading this stuff about, like, here's what missionaries have to say. Here's what our lives are actually like. Here's what it's like being on the front lines of like race and poverty. It was like pretty bracing and stunning and felt completely new to, to my experience. Yeah. Um, is that how you experienced it as well? Absolutely. And I think it even caused a little bit of tension in my own family because there was some pushback on this white savior complex, right? And white people going, 
other places and trying to save brown people or, you know, doing it here. And, you know, my youngest sister was also a full-time missionary. So there was definitely some, some conversations to, to be had around that. And we've all sort of like learned these things at different paces and we've come to our own conclusions, but I, you know, we all talk really openly about this stuff in general. And I think that that, yeah, it was the first time I had really reconsidered what missions is or should, or should be. Well, let's talk about Candace because yeah, she was a missionary, but then she, she married somebody. And so this is a different angle. This is like welcoming a Sudanese man into your family. And mm-hmm. now he's your brother-in-law and his kids are your nephews and nieces. And so what, what did that do? I mean, obviously I would assume nobody in your family. And I, by the way, I met your family and spent time with them long before any of this podcasting stuff. And, and they're very kind people. So it's not like I would have expected anybody to be like, don't marry a black guy. It's right. not anything like that. But I'm sure actually bringing someone into the family, getting to know him, hearing his experience, comparing it to yours, et cetera, and their shared experience as a couple. Mm-hmm. I'm really curious how that kind of moved the needle for you. Even for my sister, who's married to him, like she was aware of some of the stuff. And, and there is a difference to being an African man in America and, right. and being African-American. So he is treated differently. So, you know, I don't know that he gets... I almost feel like, you know, I feel like my grandpa, he's maybe not said it, but there's a little bit like you're one of the good ones. It's never been said, but if that one makes the sense, good ones, you know what I mean? Like sort of like, I don't know, like that's the vibe I get. I can't say for sure that that's, that, that is not a thing that has been verbalized, if that makes sense. Well, it is very true. Like uh, one of my colleagues, classmates in my side program is Kenyan and she moved here like, I'm going to get this wrong, 13 years ago or something like that. And she has talked in class and with me as a friend about how she feels some disconnect from her African-American friends who actually had a different experience than, than her being an an African, right? So there is of course that difference and there's no monolith here, but Mm -hmm. I I guess I'm curious just as, as the white family member and then assimilating him into the family, what that did for you. He's so, he's so, he's so quiet. He doesn't necessarily talk a lot about his like feelings and some of that's cultural, but some of it's just, he's just a quiet guy. And so I don't think I had heard a lot from my brother-in-law on his experiences. He talked about some of the troubles in Sudan and like the things he saw, but not really, you know, microaggressions that may happen to him here. But then when when my niece and nephew were born, I feel like it sort of unleashed like a mama bear and my sister and just the thing. I mean, my parents witnessed things like my parents and my sister and their family were, and they lived in Salem, which is like pretty relatively conservative Oregon city. And so, you know, there's one day where they were all out to lunch and my nephew, I think was two and this older white guy, whether or not it was a joke, I don't know if it was, it was a really bad one, but he pulled out like, I think it was a $50 bill. And he like offers it to Steven. He's like, I'll give you $50 for the boy. And like points to my nephew. Like there's an actual, <laughs> which is wild. Wow. Um, Yeah. And my sister was so taken aback by it. She was like, I wish that I would have told him off, but I was just so stunned and shocked and like upset in that moment. We just turned around and left. She's like, I just didn't even know what to say. You know, there've been issues with my niece at her like elementary school kids, you know, telling her that they aren't allowed to play with her because they're parents. So it's like these sorts of things where, you know, when it's happening to your family who you love, you know, like I love my niece and nephew with my entire heart and just to hear that you know they've been experiencing these things since they were they were born has been like you you know you can hear your whole life that racism exists in america but it becomes very real when someone you love experiences that 
that's interesting. It brings up a, a question that I think, or I guess more like a, a wrinkle in the conversation that I think is not explored very much, which is a lot of white people, when these news events happen or the protests happen or whatever, or they're thinking about it, you know, they're, they're like, look, I don't, I don't think I'm racist in this way, uh, overtly racist or anything like that. And uh, most, most people in today's polite society are not, especially, you know, under 80 or something like that. But a thing that's interesting is like, how many does it take, right? So in terms of the lived experience of a black person, which of course we can't speak to, but based on just interviews and, and stuff I've read, it doesn't take a lot. You don't have to have 70% of the white people in your life say something, you know, in order to think that like there's something awry here and yeah. I'm not totally welcome the way that other people are. Like if, if 2%, do that often enough or you know what I mean like or even just your sister who's white having this experience with her two-year-old someone offering maybe as a joke to buy her black child from her right. how many of those that. do you need before you're like okay something is f***ed here right uh, absolutely and I, you know I feel not everybody can have black people in their family and so I feel a lot of remorse for not maybe understanding some of these things early. You, I think you can understand it or generally you can read about it and know it, but then, you know, that, that felt experience, like when someone you love experiences racism, it just, it hits home differently. And whether or not, I don't know if that's right, because I think that we should all feel this and feel for, you know, the black community, whether or not that impacts us personally or not. But, you know, as we know, human beings, like personal experiences do motivate us more. And so, right or wrong what it is what it is and that is you know part of my experience of sort of unlearning all the things I was raised you know the things I didn't even necessarily talk about like I said it just wasn't even it wasn't a big point of conversation it was just sort of I think we just almost treated it like it wasn't a thing right it was sort of like well you know slavery's over right feel free to ignore this question because it's very hard to do these kind of counterfactuals but I wonder if you've ever thought about how much slower you might have been to changing on this issue if you hadn't had, you know, multiple of these kind of family influences over the years. And if that affects the way you think about other people going through, you know, encountering some of this information, maybe for the first time or second time instead of the 15th time or something like that. It's, it certainly helps. It's impossible, like you said, to know whether or not where I would have landed. I tend to be a person who who likes to read up on things. I'm also an empath. Like I have a lot of interest in politics. So I think that I feel like I would have landed here, but maybe, maybe not to the passionate degree that, that I'm at. And also I think that, I mean, who knows? Like I said, it's, it's, it's a little bit impossible, but I think that my experience has not like left me no doubt in my mind. It was sort of like, there's, there's no question that I have to be outspoken about this, that this is a, a huge problem in the world and that I can't, be silent about this. I think maybe if it wasn't so personally affecting, maybe I would have been more tempted to just have the knowledge, but maybe not feel compelled to speak on it. Yeah, that I think that makes sense. Well, my last question for you is about faith. You and I are sort of liberal-ish Protestant Christians, moved a little to the left theologically of where we were raised, um, but still identifying as such. And I'm wondering, how does it relate to either the, the journey of your faith, the change, or just in recontextualizing or rethinking about the faith you were brought up with. I was thinking about some of these things and I remember 
one more eye-opening moment. I, I had just moved to Portland six months before Obama got elected. And I remember sitting in a room with my then boyfriend, now husband, and some of his friends. And there was like, there was a couple of gay guys and there was a couple of black people. And it was like, and, you know, we got the news and literally everyone in the room just started crying. And it was, I mean, I feel like the streets where everyone was just celebrating, people were so excited. But then in the months to come and, you know, it, the sort of evangelical church and the pushback and all the birther stuff, it's, it just, I mean, I mean, literally heard people ask if, Obama could have been the antichrist. I mean, it was just like the evangelical pushback to him. It was just so, it was so different than this, like, like diverse group of people I was in this room with who literally felt like freedom for the first time in a really long time. And I think that that sort of started making me sort of unravel like, oh, like realizing how closely evangelicalism is tied to some of these horrible things and how evangelicals are unwilling to talk about race because it's political, which is hilarious because evangelicals are incredibly political. And, you know, I would say it's almost caused me to lose my faith a few times. Like after Trump was elected, I was like, I don't want to touch this with a 10 foot pole. I don't want to be lumped in with this category like this. Jesus wants no part of this, you know? So yeah, but then I've 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 come to realize I, a lot through my sister. Honestly, I, I've gone through Danielle. I went to some conferences in the last couple of years and just met like some really incredible people and was able to hear from people of faith who are like out there fighting and doing social justice work. And from you know, I still keep in touch with like an immigration lawyer I met through. Danielle a year or two ago in Chicago and we ended up actually working on a project together this year and just people like that who just are doing such incredible work day in and day out and who have faith and who love Jesus and are willing to fight for the oppressed and it's now that I know that those two things can exist it you know I've been able to reconcile some of that and I found a red church we go to an Episcopal church here in our neighborhood that I just adore. That's fantastic. That's very hopeful. Lindsay, thank you so much for chatting with me about this. Thanks for having me, Dan. So yesterday I put out a really interesting patron exclusive episode. It was a conversation with Congressional Representative Ro Khanna. He's from California. So he's a congressman. He was on the really the the Trump uh, impeachment committee, although we didn't talk about that. We talked about his work with um, former President Carter. We talked about sort of religious difference uh, and how, I don't know, people can work across uh, boundaries religiously. Uh, That's something that um, Jimmy Carter has done a lot of work on and and, uh, Representative Khanna has joined him recently. And uh, he's also from really my dad's congressional district in California, which is kind of cool my old stomping grounds. Anyway, that's like a kind of a conversation that was really cool and interesting. Didn't really fit on you have permission and I'm not doing depolarize anymore, which is where it would have fit, but I didn't want to say no to interviewing him because what a cool opportunity. So that just goes to the patrons. That's a little, a little bonus there, little perk. So you get two exclusive episodes like that every month. If you become a patron also access to the Facebook group, which is patron only and which is awesome. I say that all the time. If you are interested in becoming a patron, Dan Coke, or sorry, patreon.com slash Dan Coke, or you have permission pod.com and click become a patron. It is $5 a month, but there is a sliding scale. If finances are tough for you right now, if that's true, you can email me. You have permission podcast at gmail.com. All right. Next up, we've got 
uh, testimony from Shadley Kensrew, and after that, Ashley Walking Stick. Shadley, thank you so much for joining me today and, and talking about uh, this little story of yours and yeah. joining joining the joining the chorus here. Yeah, Let's start with me. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> Let's start with your background. So, you know, as pertains to especially the, the questions of race and racial justice and stuff, what did you what is the what is the soup you basically grew up in? Yeah, well, I'm a white woman. I was actually born and raised in a very small farm town in Utah. Um, And I moved to Southern California when I was seven or eight. I was in uh, second grade. So I came from a very like white, homogenous area and lived in Orange County since then, a couple years in Seattle. So I think I... (laughs) I was very ignorant. I didn't really understand things prior to moving to Southern California. I don't think I'd ever even met another person of color, like black, anything. So so you weren't um, in Salt Lake City then? You were outside no. of... Yeah. I was in a small town called Pleasant Grove, which has since like actually grown substantially. So it's not super small anymore. But at yeah. the time, it was really small. Were you non-Mormon? No, so I was actually... Okay, you were raised Mormon. I was going <laughs> to yeah. say, that would be okay. one kind of minority experience yeah. of a different sort. No, super, super crazy. I was baptized Mormon, raised in the church. Uh, both sides of my family are still practicing Mormons. Okay. Well, that's interesting. I mean, the kind of monoculture in non-Salt Lake City, Utah, is really its own kind of thing in, in American culture. Totally. Um, and I, I think it played a part of like as my perspective started to broaden. I feel like there was a weight of like, but my family and I, I'm not sure how to have these conversations and a lot of fear based on like, how do I kind of open my mind to this, but also how do I articulate it in a way that's not going to be offensive or, you know, make things awkward. My parents are awesome. My parents are very open-minded and, um, been like a huge role in being accepting and I always felt it accepted as a kid that's something they really were like hey you want to leave the Mormon church you can leave the Mormon church if you if you want to become Buddhist become Buddhist it was very open as a kid and I think that was super freeing so that yeah that's been huge I probably should do episodes about the LDS church because it's so fascinating along so many of the angles that I'm interested in but it's worth noting that that monoculture that exists in, in like Provo and, and other cities and, and rural areas in Utah where there is just a very significant white Mormon majority. You know, Mormons, depending on what you call outperforming, I would consider this voting against Trump. Mormons outperformed Protestants and Catholics in America. They are the only religious group that voted for Trump at 50 percent or less because oh, religious groups tend to be conservative. And so you get more of a yeah. Republican vote. Yeah, they so they have the highest score of, you know, Christian groups in America. Some people don't consider them Christian, at least Christian adjacent, whatever you say. I consider them Totally. Christians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's not always bad. That, you know, the That's the culture... surprising to me, because just from my family. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> and get, like... because anecdotally, people's families are all different. But, but yeah, I mean, Utah, and they elected Romney as senator, partly as a counterbalance to Trump. I mean, there's, the Mormon community is kind of stepping it up politically in a way that we're not seeing so much in other white Christian areas. And so I'm wondering, I don't have any data, but I'm curious, 
about racial attitudes, for instance. I'd love to see some polling uh, when that comes out after, you know, throughout all the post George Floyd stuff. Yeah, no, that's a super interesting point. I have seen some really cool stuff coming out from Mormon culture supporting um, like the LGBTQ movement more. I believe his name is Dan Reynolds, the singer of um, Imagine Dragons Dragons has been super awesome in that, like super stoked on the stuff that he's been doing. I've had really cool conversations with family about those kind of things. So I do see that there is there's a tenderness on some of these things that I didn't think existed, but I think they're there. Yeah. So you moved to California. Your your particular family uh, sounds like is pretty conservative, sort of sociopolitically conservative, other than your parents who had this uh, wonderful kind of open mindedness, which sounds awesome. And I think a lot of people listening to this show heard that and got very wistful and sort of wished that that had been their parents experience, their experience with their parents. Yeah. But so when is the first time that you recognized, oh, there's maybe a bit more going on here? Because, you know, even if you didn't meet black people, you certainly saw them on television growing up. Right. So totally. it's not like a situation where you don't know that they exist or anything. Mm-hmm. Right. I feel like I kind of bought into that idea of like, this is something that happens other places, right? So so as long as we're being kind and we're being accepting, like this this doesn't involve us. This isn't our, our th- thing. This is not our fight to fight, right? And I feel like there's not one moment where like really hit me. I, I, I saw a friend who was black when I was a child be called the N-word. And I didn't know what that word meant at the time. I think I probably went home and asked my parents what it meant. Um, and that was probably a really interesting conversation for them to try and navigate with me. But sure. I remember seeing his emotion and in a very like raw, intense emotion. He was super impactful for me as a child to be like, what? Why did that one word like affect him so much? So little things like that as a child and growing up as a teenager, I had quite a few friends who were Latino or black, but I, I lived in Irvine, which at the time was very white. It has um, since become more diverse, which has been super cool and something we really value um, and why we've kind of stuck around for our own kids. So I think there's been like little things along the way that have made me kind of wonder what, what is my part in this? Like, even if I'm being a good person and I, I don't consider myself racist, which has been something that I have also grown in, like what, what is my role? And, it, and I kind of bit off the whole argument that it's like, it's not my place. Yeah. But so 14 years ago, you become a nurse, right? Yep. So I become a nurse. Yeah. So, so take us through that. Yeah. I become a nurse. I worked in the level one trauma center for Orange County, which is UCI medical center. Um, I worked there for about five or six years. um, And I think working with a diverse population really started to open up my eyes to some of the like health disparities that exist in race. I think going through school, I'm now in, um, almost finished with my master's in nursing. So been doing a lot of school in those 14 years, which a lot of that has to do with researching different health disparities and how that interacts with different parts of our population. But I definitely started to see like, oh, there is, there is a place for me to help in this way or partake in this and over time kind of wondering how how I was personally complicit in in some of these things. Um, so it's been like a very long road, but I think public health has definitely played a part. I actually work as a school nurse now. I stepped away from critical care 
and I work as a school nurse in here in Irvine. And that has also been huge for me because I don't want to get into the other topics, but other topics that I was kind of spoon fed an answer for, especially in the Christian culture of, you know, transgender and all these things that seemed very foreign to me. I didn't have a personal interaction with people who identified as anything other than kind of what I, I basically I was in an echo chamber of Christian voices and just kind of accepting them. And I, the more experience I had with other people that were different than me, I just kind of started figuring things out. Yeah, which I think is a very natural way that this stuff starts to happen for people. I want to ask two things about the nursing and medical stuff. So the first one is, and you know, I, I don't mean to put you on the spot. So whatever you can rattle off the top of your head is great. Okay. Uh, I don't think actually very much ink gets spent on medical disparities. I know you see it in the training. So like in your program, you're learning it. And, and in my program to become a psychologist, we have to learn that stuff. But a lot of this stuff was brand new information to me. Like for instance, diabetes and, and heart disease and, and the way that they, they've shown that black patients are differentially treated than white patients. There's also can be benefits to having a doctor of your same race. Yep. And since not as many black people get into medical school, then there are fewer black doctors and therefore more black doctors have to have non-black or sorry, black patients have non-black doctors, whereas most white patients can have white doctors if they'd mm-hmm. like or whatever. What, what else off the top of your head um, have you learned around that stuff? Yeah, well, that brings up a good topic, too, is that we're having patients come in who don't identify or have a doctor that's the same race as them, which can create disparities in itself as far as language barriers or cultural barriers, right? So like that is very important. And and if they're the same race or the same ethnicity or culture, like we need to have better training on how to be more respectful in these. But here's the, the crazy part of that is that we have to acknowledge the history of medicine for people of color. There's already a foundational mistrust of the medical system. You can look back at like the Tuskegee trials that were happening. And um, I don't know if you're familiar with Henry Henrietta Lacks. So Henrietta Lacks was a black woman who had a very aggressive form of cervical cancer, and she was treated at Johns Hopkins. And her cells were used to replicate and a ton of stuff has come from her cells, but no one was ever compensated. She never consented to her cells being used. Her family continued in, in poverty and was unable to get medical care of their own, even though the medical system was using her cells. So there's a And to fill in the Tuskegee thing that if people don't know that, a bunch of these black men thought they were basically being treated, but actually they were doing a double blind study about syphilis right. and basically giving half of them syphilis and not the other half and not treating it. Right. Uh, and the, the kind of thing that would be in, insanely unethical today. Um, but of course they did that with, with uh, black patients, not white patients. Totally. And the wild part is it seems like that was so long ago. It wasn't that long ago. And so I think that's what kind of has pushed me to be like, okay, that wasn't that long ago. I have to start opening up my eyes to like what's still happening that still needs reform and still needs policies and still needs someone to get in there and kind of work through this stuff. Yeah, that's good. I want to sort of ask you about that advocacy in a second. But before you mentioned that your time as a nurse working in that trauma center opened your eyes. And I I wonder if you could just kind of give us a look in like what are what are one or two actual experiences you had 
that I wouldn't have had in my life or something that made you go, oh, interesting, something's going on here? Yeah. So I think um, one big thing was the lack of insurance for people of color. And that's a super complex issue because it's not just poverty. It's not just lack of jobs. Like this, this is such a complex issue that we need lots of really intelligent people to get together and figure out things and advocate for political leaders that see this as important. But being in that environment and seeing how someone can come in as a trauma, right? And so they're in the ICU for, let's say, three weeks, bad car accident or something crazy happened. They survive. However, then they're, they are now bankrupt, from their medical expenses that they had as a trauma victim. And a lot of these things were things that maybe they were crossing the street. They were just crossing the street in the crosswalk and they get hit by a car. Their life, whatever they've created up until that point is now completely lost. Um, They don't have medical insurance and not a lot of programs exist to help people in this way. Bankruptcy is huge for medical expenses. So I saw that firsthand. I remember one of the hardest things I saw was a mom who lost her son after he was in the ICU with us for a long time. She, he ended up um, dying of his injuries. I think it was like three years later that I, I had this patient, a young kid who was shot, gunshot wound. And so I was in there as his nurse and this mom looked so familiar to me. And I realized this was the mom of my patient before who was in a motor vehicle accident and ended up dying from his injuries. This same mom is now here with her son who's been shot. And I don't have a really bad memory, but I think he also did not end up surviving. So not a lot of care, not a lot of support, not a lot of um, financial assistance to help people in that way. So that that's one thing I saw for sure. Also, just the lack of people feeling like they can get their preventative care. And so that's one of the reasons why I kind of have felt so strongly about um, being a school nurse is because I started to see a lot of patterns in care, right? So like people are coming in with these chronic health issues that are causing them to be admitted to the ICU. But if we did a better job with preventative medicine, then I think a lot of these things could have changed. So being a school nurse has been really great in that it's allowed me to not only like be the nurse for these students, at my school and I work at a high school right now, which is super fun. So they actually like listen and they're asking really cool questions and they're curious about their body and their health. But it's more about like the familial support that I can provide as a, as a nurse in the school system. Unfortunately, not a lot of places have school nurses and I just happen to be able to live and work for a really awesome city that does have that. So yeah, preventative medicine, public health, huge, huge eye openers for me. Yeah, I think medical bills is one of those areas where we can more closely see the relationship between class and race. So uh, race being kind of a statistical predictor for class and, you know, basically financial ability and and the, you know, the data on household wealth, sort of mean, mean household wealth. It's something like black families have 10 percent the mean wealth of uh, white families. I don't remember if it's Mm -hmm. mean or median. But it's it's bad. And this is the kind of thing where that happens. If my wife or I had a disastrous or our son had a disastrous medical experience, uh, we could take out some equity line on our house. You know, right. like it wouldn't bankrupt us. Maybe right. we sell and you our probably house. Have, you have health insurance, too. Well, so, right, of course. Right. So, so even if we, you know, for some reason we had lapsed our health insurance and 
we had to sell our house. Okay, well, we have a house to sell. And then her parents would maybe be able to help. And right. they own their house outright. And, right. you know, all down the line. Uh, one thing I'm really interested in and I've been asking some people and I've just been thinking about is like beyond simply feeling guilt and sort of repenting or acknowledging one's place within systemic racism, which I think is important. How do we have sustainable vision moving forward? And I'm I'm kind of guessing that for you, I mean, you're obviously you're a mom also. So you're I'm sure you're thinking about uh, talking to your children and stuff. Mm-hmm. But the interesting thing about your story that isn't the same with the other people I've been interviewing is is your capacity as a nurse. So I'm wondering, is is that one of the ways that you think of sort of your role moving forward? Is it well, maybe my role is in the medical community or something like that? I think that and like, I think that's kind of been my new kind of stepping up to the plate, whereas I prior to now, I kind of felt like, okay, I'm going to do what I can with the education that I've been privileged enough to have to use it for good things in healthcare. And I'll continue to do that for sure. I mean, my hope is to become a nurse practitioner and do primary care. And really, when I became a nurse, I went into it with this idea of like, I want a career that is based around helping people. That's all. I don't care how much it pays. I want to be able to go and do and help in some like very tangible way. So I will continue to do that. But I also have felt as of late and as my own journey has gone on in this, and there's been a lot of really awesome resources that exist and have helped me a lot. But it's also trying to have conversations within my community and, you know, Christian circles like church. One of the big reasons we left the last church we were at was um, we started to see some of these like political lines drawn in the sand and an us versus them kind of mentality that was super unhealthy and, and just making those hard, uncomfortable decisions to get uncomfortable and risk giving something up of myself to try and help see things and help others see things. And also I think encourage people um, around me that um, it's not about feeling guilty and being stuck in this guilt. Maybe, I mean, there's I feel guilty for certain things for sure. Like why did it take me so long to figure this crap out? So I think the guilt is, good because it moves us, right? It takes us of an introspective view. uh, What is my part in this? And then it moves us into something. It's not somewhere to stay in that guilt or shame that we partake. I've seen a lot of things on social media of people being like, I'm not going to be shamed for being white. That's not what this is about. That's not about, it's not about being shamed for being white. It's you are white. That is a fact. What do you do with that? So how do each of us in each of our capacities, whether it's in healthcare or psychology or education, how do each of us as white people open up our own perspective and try and empower that perspective to move forward in the people that we meet and interact with on a day-to-day basis? Yeah. So you mentioned making a hard decision around church, but that, that leads to my last question for you, which is more at a personal faith level. I'm curious how this sort of awakening to racial injustice, if you want to call it that, whatever you want to call it, how has that related to your conception of Christianity or, or any, you know, wide open question there? This was the question I was worried about. <laughs> okay, good. That that tells me that gets no, me excited. Yeah. I listen to your podcasts and you're very smart and I often feel like very 
inferior talking I'm not about asking you to I know. be a theologian. <laughs> I just want to know your, what you're thinking about it. Good. Okay. So very simple uh, also, explanation I have, to that. Also, I prepare for those conversations. I mean, it's not, <laughs> you know, don't give me too much credit here. Uh, okay. Awesome. Like I said, I became a Christian later in life. I became a Christian when I was 19 and I started feeling like what moved me towards Jesus is not what I'm seeing in this argument. I'm not seeing compassion, empathy. I'm not seeing the church come down to a level where we're listening and we are advocating for people that are in pain and wanting to do so. I just started to see some real serious I'm, I was seeing a lot of incongruencies with yeah. with the very basic foundational Christian thoughts and how the church, the, the people, my friends within the church, the church I was going to, and some of the stuff I was even reading or taking in as my answer to some of these questions did not line up with the Jesus that I knew. It was interesting as I started having these conversations with friends um, and people in the church, like people would try and shame me for having that kind of thought. Like, well, what Jesus are you talking about? Like, right. Of course. What? Like one person specific of of the good Samaritan parable, (laughs) right? So one person specifically called me out and said, I'm sorry, are you talking about Jesus of the Bible? Yes, that's ex- wow. that's exactly who I'm talking about. So I think that was kind of the wake up call of like, I need to stop having white Christian culture paint the picture of this issue for me. I need to be brave enough to go outside and maybe I'm going to be, I'm going to look back and be like, shoot, I was wrong. Or maybe I'm going to look back and think I have some people to apologize to, but I would way rather open myself up to different voices, voices that are actually there in it. I mean, there's so many good, awesome resources out there that I'm bummed I didn't just take that step earlier. But Well, it's so interesting. You were raised in Mormonism in rural Utah or whatever, exurban, suburban Utah, which is like the the white one of the whitest areas of America. Heck yeah, and then man. you you came to Jesus or you know, you came to a Protestant faith in evangelicalism, which is also predominantly white. But what's so funny about this, like, you know, I'm not seeing language in the church. I'm not seeing sort of leadership in the church. If we had been raised black or if we had been raised uh, mainline, like Episcopal or, you know, Methodist or Lutheran or something, we might have a different experience. Right. And I I wasn't either. I was also raised white evangelical. And so I'm, I'm really interested in that angle. And and it is so interesting that ethnicity plays such a strong role my favorite statistic to quote is from 2016 before the election, like October, I think it was Lifeway, which had a really good, like four or five point theological test for evangelicalism, like Hmm. Jesus Bible, you know, whatever, like, like just really strong and people who pass that test. So this is not self-identified. These are people who answer strongly agree with all four or five, right? If they were white, they were like 80, 85 percent going to vote for Trump. And if they were black, same theological points, they were 90 percent going to vote for Hillary. So wow. that's interesting. The theological points basically have zero predictive power and the race has all the predictive power. So even if we think, well, the black church is going to get some things wrong and the white church is going to get some things wrong. Fine. Whatever you want to even if you want to soften that, it's just interesting that that's the predictor. So 
there whatever's going on on oh, yeah. the output being who we vote for for president actually the things that we all say are the foundational theological beliefs we have are not determinative of who we will vote for interesting, interesting. so i mean i would say that's probably because black people are listening to black people and yeah, they're the ones people, we yeah. should be listening to well, on these so yeah that's kind of what you were saying uh, that's kind of what i was thinking when you were saying like needing to find new voices like the cool thing is there are a bunch of great black preachers and authors and like you know thought leaders and writers within christianity already and they have yeah. been they have been studying this stuff as part of their seminary for you know and ministry formation their whole lives um, totally. And so that's kind of, that's the move. But forward. we go back to what's comfortable, right? We go back to the people that look like us, the people that sound like us. That's right. one thing that has been a really big eye opener for me is this whole concept of tone policing, right? So like, if it's not said in the way that I relate to as a white person, white woman, white man, whatever, I can't hear it. I'm not going to listen. So I think that has been such a good thing for me personally in this journey is like, how many times have I shut something out just because I, I'm not jiving with the way it's been said, like enough, like just the way the, the white culture speaks doesn't mean it's better. Right. Yeah. That's like, I'm so fascinated by that. It, I think that's going to have to be its own episode because I mean, the, the white fragility thing is interesting, but I'm also just interested in fragility and like, yes. maybe there's evangelical fragility, which is actually its own thing about like, I need someone to say it like in my in class last night, our professor was like, if any of you have a burden to whatever. And I was like, oh, burden. I recognize that word from growing up. Like, you know, like and there are some people for whom if something's not packaged that way, they can't hear it at all. And I think that that's immature, probably. I mean, like, yeah, certainly you could never be a therapist if you were like that, because you have to get past your own foibles and whatever to be able to hear someone where they're coming from and that basic listening i'm i'm being trained for right. specifically but i would think any everybody would want that like or you're just going to be a really shitty counselor like right, therapist exactly. right because yeah. you're not going to hear things the way people are meaning for them and to be yeah, clear my my good. uh professor i'm sure is a great therapist he he's just he was just speaking his language right and right. i think he's kind of evangelical so he phrased it that way but it was just interesting that i noted that that word and i was like oh that actually signals something to, such that like I know people who would listen to that that wouldn't have listened as closely if he just said feel like sharing you know or whatever or care totally. about or whatever well, it makes you know? me wonder about so you were raised in the church right yeah like evangelical so, okay yeah, evangelical. so I, one of the weird things for me becoming a Christian later in life like the Christianese and the term the, and I would always be like I'm not going to pray out loud because all these weird words they use to pray like i don't even know what they're saying so yeah kind of that same if it's in the in the tone and the terms that we don't hear we're not going to listen right um, i mean i just think yes around race but in general i want to mm -hmm. encourage people to be conscious of the phrasings that are, make them more likely to hear somebody and and that's something to be conscious of just as we as we try and listen to and understand people from all walks of life well shadley thank you so much for your time and yeah, contributing to this me. really appreciate it and uh best of luck in the continued fight yes i'm gonna keep going thanks 
The last person we're hearing from today is Ashley Walking Stick. Now, Ashley's interesting because she's not actually white, depending on your definition. She is one quarter Mexican and one quarter Korean, but she could pass as white in most situations, although she reports certain acquaintances having asked her at points in her life if she was Persian, of all things. Her biological father emphasized her quarter Mexican heritage, and she initially grew up in a neighborhood in Reno, Nevada, that was almost entirely white and Hispanic. But when her parents divorced, she moved to California to a diverse high school, and her new stepfather was overtly racist towards many groups. And that's where we pick up with Ashley's story. My mom's husband was very racist, is very racist, and would call black people thugs and just comment on the way that they dressed all the time and their loud music. And he used the N word at the same time. I had a neighbor that lived right next door to me that I was hanging out with daily. Her dad was a guard at Folsom prison and he was also racist. So this was just like culture shock. All of a sudden I'm, I'm in a world where there are black people and you know, Russians and Asian people, like just very mixed, very diverse. I was afraid of black people because of my experience of the unknown of like who they were as a people. And I would see them, you know, be in a, a circle and like fighting each other and just be like, what's going on? Why are they fighting? And nobody's stopping them or just like the unknown of just like, that was scary for me. So I was like, I was building up, these prejudices and these biases in high school that I wasn't even aware of. And it wasn't until later that I, my uh, late teenage years, early 20s, where I really started understanding that racism is very real, it's very wrong, like don't use the N-word. To to be clear, around the age 20, you learned (laughs) not to use the N-word because of your experience with your stepdad. I mean... I wasn't taught anti-race. I wasn't taught like what racism is. And I was definitely not taught anti-racism. I didn't even know what that meant until recent years or if that was like, I don't know how old the, I mean, I'm not really sure how long ago the anti-racism rhetoric became more mainstream. You don't have to feel bad about that necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, as you became aware of sort of diversity, you had an adult in the house who was a very bad example of how to think and talk about that diversity. Yeah. So from 20 to 30, let's say in Mm -hmm. your 20s. So, okay, you're, you're out of the shadow maybe of your stepfather, but you're still an adult and you're not where you're at now. So Mm -hmm. just describe that period. I think it was a, it was a pretty slow process. Obviously in my mind, racism is bad. I would consider myself to be, not racist. It seemed like there was within media more black people being killed that we are becoming aware of. Not that it was happening more because it's happening all the time that we don't know about. It was Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, like all like these things that would just say, oh, this is a, this is a real problem. And I wasn't aware of this. It was a short outrage as if I heard a story about a child being killed or a woman being raped. In my mind, it was a single instant, like a isolated incident, not 
this deep rooted system of why this is happening. So when I hear about these black people being killed and just, it would like, I would feel rage and anger that there needs to be justice, but that's like the extent of where my mind went. And then the St. Louis protests. And that's when it really became aware to me that me being silent about these things that I might feel enraged about was choosing the side of oppressor. I remember hearing that for the first time and just being really shook by that. And just, I had no idea. And that's when I really started learning about racial disparities in everything in healthcare in law enforcement and housing and crime. But it was very, very, very slow and gradual education of, I wanted to learn these things and I wanted to know these things. But at the same time, I wasn't aware that I needed to be part of a conversation about it. Talk about when you first started moving from the individual racism, like your stepfather, to systemic racism. And maybe I'm curious what the emotions were like of that, because I think that for those of us raised really individualist, especially Mm -hmm. in evangelical settings, et cetera, et cetera, that can be a quite a move and it, it can be kind of. Uh, jarring to the system to realize, oh, there's like these systemic forces that are not just individual people willing things and thinking and saying things. When I would hear about white supremacy, I would think neo-Nazis, KKK. And what I'm learning now is that white supremacy is a system that's in place to control us and what we believe how we view the world and also keep us from being aware of our own privilege and that this is just rampant in our streets and in our hearts, that it's affecting black people in every realm of their life, their whole life for centuries. And that being aware of that is just, it feels like almost too much to like understand and wrap my head around about how powerful how big this beast is that has been created, that it feels like, how where do you even start to dismantle? It's interesting that you use that kind of beast language, almost like a, like evil, right? It's the language of evil. Yeah, um, it is evil. It is evil. But one thing that I find so interesting about it is just like, what's her name? The philosopher, she coined the term, the banality of evil. It's, it's banal, right? Like Adolf Eichmann, is just making sure the trains run on time. That's actually what he's doing. Now the Mm -hmm. trains are full of Jews going to their death, but he's just sees himself as a bureaucrat. Right. And Mm -hmm. so there is a sense in which, uh, white supremacy is that way too. Right. It's like Columbus just wanted like new lands to exploit for like spices, right. Or Mm -hmm. whatever. And, Uh, most people just want their kids to go to a good school. And so they're just going to move to a neighborhood that has schools that are funded better than the poor, Mm -hmm. you know, a higher proportion of African-American schools. Like a lot of this stuff is banal. It's just interesting to hear your, your stark language for calling it evil or a beast or like a big force that has all these desires. In one sense, I see it that way. And in another sense, I see it as like, it's just this thing that's, that happens to be there through sort of forces 
of its own that aren't even that aren't even really the 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 desires aren't even evil. That's just like status quo. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't know. What does that stir up in you as I make that distinction? Well, this I think the status quo is you know we want it to be comfortable for us. We want we want good in our life. We want good for our children. In our minds, that's not wrong. It's not wrong for our kids to want a good education. It's not wrong to want to live in a good neighborhood. But then also we have to ask ourselves, what does what does that actually mean? What does a good school mean? What does a good education mean? What does a good neighborhood mean? And when you would ask them, it's like, you know, there's funding at the schools that makes it a good school that there's not like the school that my five-year-old will be going to is um, she'll be a minority and our neighborhood chooses not to put their kids into that school because of the, that is quote unquote a bad school. You're saying as a white girl, she'll be a minority numerically. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. a bunch of other white families in your neighborhood basically bypass the, the public school and, go private or try and get them into other schools or something. Yeah. They, they try and get, get them into another school because when you look at it, the score at the school, the scoring is bad. I mean, it is a dilapidated building. It's falling apart. That's when you look at that on the outside, you're like, no, I'm not going to put my kid in that school. I want the best for them. And we have gone into witnessing, you know, that the school is actually really amazing. There's an amazing teacher's, the problem isn't that there isn't funding or that the kids are getting low scores. It's that people just bypass it and don't care. And they're perpetuating this problem by sending their kids to different schools. We feel called to be at that school. We've had lots of questions about it since we've lived in our house for almost four years of, you know, we want our daughter to have a good education, but in our minds, we had these prejudices, these fears or these uh, of the unknown that, she wouldn't be cared for at this school because there's a big population of Ethiopians at this school who don't speak English or their, their parents are dual working homes or single working parents or single parent homes. So there's a lot of problems that I've heard of behavioral issues. And then that puts fears in parents of like, well, I don't want my kid to deal with other kids going through this and that being the focus. And that is not a reason for us in our mind, not put her in this school. It makes me think of uh, one of the images that Ta-Nehisi Coates uses in between the world and me, probably the one that's the two images that have stuck with me the most from that book. The first is that like every beaten and killed slave woman didn't ask to be, you know, one stepping stone on the road to justice which is a very uh, obviously true and very hard to think about. The other one is this idea of like the white picket fence, the ice cream social, the immaculate high school where everybody gets into the best colleges. This kind of dream, this kind of American dream, um, which really kind of comes to fruition in our modern version in the 50s, you know, in, in suburban America after World War II, that basically that dream is in some sense in a very real terms financed by other people footing the bill, right? So your school gets to be great. You, you do white flight out of the, out to the suburbs and you send all the higher paying households out there. And then that money gets pooled into that nice 
new building and, and school or whatever. And then that's money that would have stayed in the city if you hadn't moved out to the suburbs, right? So you're basically taking funding through taxes and other things like that away from these more diverse areas and making these like white American dream silos out in the suburbs, for instance. And so for you, it sounds like, like my next question for you was going to be, what is your role? What is your role now that you have awoken to this thing? The first one is you guys have chosen to send your daughter to the local public school. And I imagine knowing you, uh, you'll be involved there as a parent and you will contribute your own time and energy to making that school better. What else comes to mind if I ask, what's your role? Anything else that you would say, and this is something else that we've thought and talked about in terms of like, it's all well and good to say I'm anti-racist, but you know, what? Mm-hmm. Not, not like put up or shut up. I'm not trying to call you out. I'm just, I know you've been thinking about it and I'm wondering what else you have been thinking about. Mm-hmm. I think when you asked initially a few days ago, what has brought me to this awakening I had a hard time with that term because I really, I honestly don't feel like it's an awakening. I feel, I mean, in the sense that, yes, I have been asleep to systemic racism and individual racism all around me in the sense that I haven't spoken up about it with the not knowing that I had the power to even do so. Um, So I've been asleep in that and been awakened to realizing I do have power and I have work to do. It's my job to dismantle my own white supremacy within my heart and my life and other people around me. Awakening feels positive. And to me, it feels more like I've been exposed, like a thread has been pulled on the fabric of who I thought I was and who I, what I thought racism was. And it's just slowly unraveling and unraveling. And I feel exposed, like my failures to the black existence as a white person, my own privilege is something that is what, what I feel awakened to, I suppose, not necessarily racism. That's really and interesting. Yeah. With George Floyd, there it felt like there was just an urgency from the world, from social media, you're just seeing all these posts and it just flooding you. And then you're finding out other people that have been killed and it's just like where's the justice for this person where's the sign this petition you know it 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 can be very overwhelming and a lot of us just want to like dive in and just do the work but I have found that over as the weeks have passed that what I need to do is step back slow down so that I don't fade away because I'm very prone to do that when I feel like I cannot handle the weight of what is going on around me. I'll just disappear. And so I am choosing to step back, slow down, not read everything, not read all the articles. Don't, I don't need to read the books right away. Listen to the podcast right away. I need to do the slow work, which is right now for me, exposing myself and asking the hard questions of, you know, like what does white privilege actually look like for me and how has that affected my life and how have I used that for good? How have I used that for bad? Or how is that, you know, any negative experience me being white affected me that a black person would not have that same experience. And one of the things that I thought was like, I was doing enough was with my daughter, I was actively pursuing books with black representation, people of color representation, 
talking about how everyone's beautiful and giving her dolls that weren't white. I thought that was enough. And with everything that's happening now and we're having conversations, she's just like, why are we all of a sudden talking about black people all the time? To her, it's like kind of like the coronavirus. Everything was fine. And then all of a sudden we're talking about the coronavirus. That's fascinating. Yeah. And now it's like, everything's fine. And now all of a sudden we're talking about black people. Like I thought black people were like great and good. And she doesn't understand it. And so I'm just, I'm realizing like, I, we need to be having conversations about race and racism consistently with our children with like, I should have been having this conversation with her years ago. Well, and you, so, I mean, you could beat yourself up about it, but, but one way to, to think about, or one way to do that, that people have done it is to have it be a part of one's religious expression. So for instance, if you or I had grown up in a black church tradition, we, it would not be a new topic. It would be a part of our Sunday worship every other week, every week, whatever, once a month. Uh, it's part of the water that that tradition swims in. If we had been raised Episcopal in one of the liberal mainline Protestant traditions, then we would have had regular prayers for racial justice, for economic justice. Uh, but we weren't mm-hmm. raised that way, actually. And so yeah. we didn't have that. So we had a tremendous focus on personal salvation, personal piety. And racism is a is one of the personal sins that you might have, just like anything else. But it was never a systems thing because... Uh, evangelicalism does not allow for systems, really. It's a it's a personalist, individualist religion, the way that it is practiced by white people in America. And uh, for receipts on that, you can check the Evangelicalism's Racial Blind Spot episode. I think it's number 14 with uh, Michael Emerson. Anyway, so, you know, that's part of it, which leads me to my really my last question for you, which is, is how this has affected you in terms of thinking about it through a faith lens now, the the fact is, I already texted with you about this, and the answer is you don't really know, which I want to say because I think it also ties back into you're not feeling like it's an awakening. So when I say awakening, I mean it in the sense of like uh, a dual move. One is it's like recognizing sin. That's the first part, which it sounds like you are very much going through. Like, oh, I'm stained by original sin or something like that. I have actually benefited from this vast system that lifts me up at the expense of other people because of my skin color. And the other half of awakening is like a move toward God, right? So a conversion experience in in religious terms, it's repentance, but repentance is like acknowledgement of wrong and turning toward good. Um, Mm -hmm. And so uh, this is a long question and I'm tying all these things together, but I think they're all related, which is I know you are still thinking through how this might apply to faith. Does that give you any kind of framework, either the the conversion stuff or the liturgy that we never had, that we, we might have had if we were raised in other traditions such that it would have been a more normal part of the conversation? Yes, that makes a lot of sense. And I still have a hard time making that connection with my faith being a part of this awakening, so to speak. I still struggle with that, but what you're saying does make sense. Can I ask you one follow-up about that? What I understand you to mean is that, look, I'm not awake. Like I'm not woke just because I have recognized you're not, 
you're not trying to yeah. have like hubris about it, which I, I get and I think is great. Is that what it is? Or is it that you are still unsure about like what the alternative is? What's the way forward? Are you still in the phase right now, which I think would be perfectly normal if you are, of just recognizing the wrongs and not maybe at the place of like, oh, and that's the promised land. And this is the direction that we go toward that. I think it's a little bit of both. I get overwhelmed really easily. And so that's what I'm saying. I need to slow down. Looking ahead, looking ahead feels like I'm like doomsday. Everything's falling apart. Just let the world implode, please. So I have to take it day by day, step by step. And for me, it's realizing my faults, my wrongs, my sins, and working through that and also exposing myself to black voices and learning from them and just being humble and allowing myself to fail and do it wrong and learning and growing and stretching and going through these growing pains of this is a new, not new thing, but very new thing at the same time. I really appreciate your vulnerability. And so I apologize for pressing further on it. You don't have to answer this. Are you having trouble giving yourself grace throughout that process at at this moment in the process? No, I don't think so. I think there's a part of me that was, is like, why didn't you know this? Why didn't you see this? Why didn't you say anything? But to me, that doesn't feel productive. It's like, I messed up in these ways. Let's move forward. Let's move forward because really it's not about how I feel. I don't feel guilt. I feel that I'm, you know, there's, I've been called out on something and I'm continually, continually being called out and I'm okay with that. And I'm accepting it and receiving it openly. I don't feel bad. I feel like, please like humble me to my core, like expose me, get down to the the depths of my, to the bones of like what is causing my biases, showing me my white privilege and what that really means. And well, you might not see the connection to faith in that, but I do, whether or not you see it. And I, I think it's beautiful. And I, I appreciate your time and your vulnerability. Ashley, thank you so much for, for chatting with me about this. You're welcome. It's a good chat. <laughs> thank you so much to Josh Gilbert for editing these conversations. And of course, to Joe, Lindsay, Shadley, and Ashley for being willing to share, you know, pretty vulnerable stuff about their own stories and past ways that they now believe that they've been wrong. Um, it's uh, it's just good. We, we need to hear this stuff. We need to remind ourselves that we're not alone as we go through these, uh, these complex and sometimes difficult processes. So uh, we'll be back next week. Um, and I think uh, that's it, except if you want to become a patron, patreon.com slash Coke. Link is in the show notes. Uh, and I also have been including my Instagram handle. If you want to see photos of Soren, our four-month-old, just follow me on Instagram. That's mostly all it is. But you can also tag me in uh, posts about the podcast. Okay, I'm done talking. See you next week. See you next week.